Time for talking's over now. I guess it's time to let you go. But I don't. No, I don't mind at all. It's getting so you never know when things are better. Hey, everybody! Welcome back to the hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, we haven't had a session guy on here for a while. Now this. So our guest this week is guitarist Lyle Workman, and he is far, far more than just a session guy. But we haven't had one like him for a while, so here's the scoop. Back in the 80s, he's a member of Bourgeois Tag, okay? And he co-wrote this song right here, their biggest hit, I Don't Mind It All. Still so wonderful. The band eventually breaks up, and he becomes a really in-demand sideman and session guy. He, In fact, he plays on Jellyfish's album Spilt Milk, which I think is a masterpiece. I think most of you would agree with me on that. He plays with Todd Rundgren. He plays with Frank Black. He plays with Sting. He plays with Alanis Morissette, They May Be Giants, Brian Adams. We talk about most of these people in here. In fact, we just barely scratched the surface, if I'm honest. There is so much more we could have discussed that we didn't even have time for. Along the way, somewhere along the way, he becomes a film scorer. And he, uh, he wrote the films and TV scores to several projects you would know, specifically a lot that are tied to Judd Apatow. So if you saw 40-Year-Old Virgin or Forgetting Sarah Marshall or Get Him to the Greek or any of those Apatow movies, Lyle worked on the scores for those movies. Now, in addition, he puts out the occasional solo album. And earlier this year, he put out a new one called Uncommon Measures that is great. It is just what you would imagine a guy as talented as he is who scores films as well as he does to put out. And so we discuss a little bit of everything in here. Um, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. That Uncommon Measures album, by the way, was parts of it were recorded at Abbey Road with a 63-piece orchestra. We forgot to mention that in here. So you're going to hear a lot of fun stuff, uh, fun stories, great music, great everything that you'll enjoy. Lyle is so talented. He called me from his home in Glendale, California. I want to kick this off. I had Brent on here, Brent Bourgeois, a couple of years ago. And um, I loved I loved Bourgeois Tag, especially Yo-Yo. Such a great album. And um, I was telling him about the time I remember seeing you guys on Carson doing I Don't Mind. And he told me a story about something that happened to you at that during that performance. And I wondered if you would retell that story. Was the story about my guitar not working? Yeah. Well, apparently <laughs> he was saying something to the effect of, so when the, when Johnny Carson introduces, you know, bourgeois tag, you come forward to play that intro and apparently your uh, guitar gets unplugged. And yeah. so there's no sound and everyone's kind of looking around like what's going on. And uh, so they have to do it over again. Is that right? Yeah, they stopped. They stopped. And of course, I was horrified. Uh huh. <laughs> without me at the beginning, it's it's basically just vocal. It's acapella. Right. <laughs> yeah, so they stopped. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they, thankfully, they, they gave us another shot. And uh, yeah, we, got, we did the song. I I'm imagining. That. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Now, I was going to say that. Me and uh, one of the, maybe it was Michael Urbano, we watched from the sidelines the Alpo dog commercial. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if this practice is done anymore, but this was with, with Ed, and 
you know, the, the dog, they had to do multiple takes. The dog comes up and, you know, puts the, th- puts the food into the, into the, uh, the doggy bowl. The dog walks up. If you got to do that multiple takes, you got to make sure that dog is still hungry. So the right. trainer, the trainer would put his fingers down his dog's throat to make him throw up. So he stayed hungry. Yeah. As I thought with my own eyes, I'm like, Oh gosh, that's unsavory. Oh, yeah. No way. Yeah. Boy, that's, that's uh you don't hear stories like that. That's fun behind the scenes stuff, you know? <laughs> and I'm guessing. I also remember, I also remember that uh, um, we were getting all, we're all getting our makeup done. And so it's five of us in, in, in the chairs and it lined up in the, in the makeup room. And uh, Harvey Corman was on that night. And uh, he, he, he peeks in and sees all the chairs are, are taken by us. Goes, what is this? The Hollywood squares? <laughs> yeah that was pretty funny. that's great did johnny ever say anything to you like even hello or good luck no tonight i, or I, I like saw that? i saw that johnny taught was talking there was a brief uh encounter at the entrance of the of the makeup room i saw brad talking to him i was really happy he got a chance to do that yeah uh, none, of, I don't, none of the rest of us were able to have any interaction okay i would imagine he would i, I could imagine your heart just pumping like crazy first of all you're nervous to be on carson and then to have this happen and have to start over and it you know uh, potentially upset the king of late night tv could have been a little nerve-wracking yeah yeah because i didn't i all i knew was was a as far as i knew it was a show that went out live but it, i guess it doesn't there you know it doesn't i figured it out because we were we were doing it at five o'clock or five thirty. show's not on until i think it was eleven thirty. okay uh, so I was able okay. to do that day. I have a weird question for you. For whatever reason, in my mind, did that show, was that filmed on Halloween? I I don't have a memory of when it was filmed. Really? I feel like, because my memory of watching that is sifting through my Halloween candy, because I was a kid, <laughs> you know, sifting through my Halloween candy. And uh, I was a big music guy. I've always have been, obviously. And I think, and I was about 14, 13, 14. And I think my, my parents were starting to get a little concerned about, you know, what direction is young John going to go? My dad, I remember, I don't mind coming on and my dad saying, see son, why don't you like music like that? (laughs) And I said, guess what? I just bought this tape the other day. I do like music like that. You know, it was, uh, Anyway, that's my, but I don't, maybe I'm conflating a bunch of different things, but that's my memory of seeing you guys. Now, after, after the Yo-Yo album, you go on to be like Todd Rundgren's backup band. He produces Yo-Yo and really Bourgeois Tag is done. Why? Mm -hmm. I mean, what was the plan? What were you thinking was going to happen back then? Was that scary to you? Well, we were working on a third record. And uh, had made some demos for it. This and then, so this is after Todd produced our record, and then Todd asked us to be his backing band mm-hmm. for his record and the record card called Nearly Human. We outfitted with other Bay Area musicians as well. So I, you know, I don't know. You know, I, I was just going with the flow. Uh, really? Yeah. It. it uh, you know, Brad decided, as he probably spoke to you about wanting to pursue a solo career, and then I, we just the rest of, the rest of us latched on to Todd and, and ended up working with him for a few years after that. 
Okay. The reason I ask is because, and I, I was reading this online somewhere, is you've had basically three careers. You had this career in Bourgeois Tag as a songwriter, guitarist, then a session guy or, you know, a touring guitarist, and then the movie score cre creator. And I don't think anyone sets out when they're young and they think, and they're playing guitar in their bedroom and thinking, I want to be a rock star. I don't think in their mind they're thinking, or maybe I'll score films, or maybe I'll just back up Beck and Sting. And that should be, no one thinks like that. They think I'm going to do my thing, but you have to be able to sort of pivot and, and adjust to the times. And you've obviously been able to do that. So I wonder when, you know, the end of that first career as member of a rock band ends and the new one is starting to happen as a side guy, as you said, you're just going with the flow. You're okay with that. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't think I uh, set specific career uh, goals in terms of this is, this is my path and that's all I'm going to do. I'm a musician and I play my guitar and I want to find ways to do that, but also be employed and learning how to play the guitar and learning how to write music. And then le le later on scoring films, these are just things I acquired skills that I acquired through being an employed musician. Mm -hmm. You know, the, and, and the, in terms of, I could break it down maybe in this way. I initially wanted to play in bands. Now that was the long, that was the, the, the main thing. I wanted to play in bands. I wanted to write music and play in bands and tour and play and play live. And then I also enjoyed recording. And so that the, the interest shifted to, to, to adding on to that was to record beyond play on people's records and, and uh, make records. So I was just adding on to the skill set, adding on to the things that I wanted to do. Yeah. And then the film composing came through session work. Mm -hmm. Through session work came the uh, opportunity to write music for commercials. And so that was my, my first, uh, op that was my first experiences writing music to picture. And I enjoyed it. I, 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 I really liked that. And through also through session work, I ended up doing a independent film with another composer. So it was a co-composer thing that gave me my first film. So I had film, I had one film, I had some commercials and then I had, by that time I'd written quite a few pieces of music. I had uh, recorded a couple solo records of instrumental music. Mm -hmm. Tabula Rasa. Good stuff. Yeah. 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 At that point it was that one and the one before that purple passages. So oh, yeah, that one came records. And so I'd always, I'd always had technology. I always had gear be able to uh, document music and record it. So I, in a way I was increasing my skill set and uh, developing things that I needed to be able to do in order to take on film composing because there's that technical aspect of mm -hmm. working with picture and computers and syncing things up. And, you know, so I, I, I was teaching myself along the way how to do those kind of things unknowingly or unwittingly, preparing myself for the role as composer. Yeah. And so uh, I, I ended up with a, uh, through session work, I ended up with a, Universal Pictures music executive in my studio. He wanted uh, 
some guitar for a song he wrote for a, a personal project and a film composer that I was working for, uh, uh, Edward Shermer is his name. And I played on his, some of his soundtracks as a session player. And, but he, he knew that I had, had done one uh, independent film and some commercial stuff. And are we talking about made? Cause that's yeah, the first made, movie. That's your yeah, first. That was the movie, first, movie. right? That's correct. It was a small independent film. I remember it well. It wasn't that small because it was the follow-up to Swingers Swinger. with John Favreau right. and Vince Vaughn. Well, small in the fact that it was a, a small, uh, small budget independent sure. film, cost five million dollars to make, and I think made that back. Yeah, but uh, I tried. I tried getting some representation after that, and nobody, nobody would take a meeting with me. And so, a few years after that, I uh, ended up through this through Ed Sh- Shermer whose wife was an executive at universal. She said, Hey, Harry's got, uh, he's got a song. He wants a, you know, he's vice president of music and he wants, uh, you know, some guitar. And then my Ed did, did me this favor, but he said, Hey, if you do this guy a favor, it, he's not a bad guy to do a favor for. Mm. And so I made sure I made a CD in advance of him coming mm. with, uh, some of the stuff from made some commercial stuff and a little bit of my instrumental music, a couple pop songs. Mm-hmm. And so I did end up doing the song and, and sent him off with the CD and he called me back and he said, Hey man, I really like your, your music. And yeah. as a matter of fact, there's a film and uh, we, there's, I think there's an opening for you to maybe submit some extra music and additional music. If you're interested, I was like, yeah, I'm very interested. And it was a movie that Judd Apatow was the producer of. And so uh, the music ended up in the film. And shortly after Judd signed a deal with universal pictures as a, a directorial deal. And uh, needing a what composer. was the movie he was the producer on? Uh, it was called w- was Kicking and Screaming. Oh, a, yeah, Will yeah, Ferrell. Will Ferrell, of course. Duvall, yeah, kind of like a kids' soccer comedy. My kids of. love that movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, what when Judd signed his deal and they were looking for a composer, where Harry was, was uh, he's again, he's the vice president of music that brought me into the fold, said, Do you? suggested that uh, I get a chance at it. And now Judd, luckily, luckily Judd is a big fan of music. So he knew of my work with Frank Black and some of the other things I've done and really likes working with musicians and people from, you know, bands and whatnot. So, so let's give him a couple, a couple scenes to, 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 to demo to. And so I, I, I did that and I thought, there's no way I'm going to get it. You know, he's, he can get anyone he wants a, you know, it's a feature film with a, with a nice budget. And I got the job. Now, when that movie came out, it was number one uh, for two weeks in a row. 40-Year-Old Virgin. 40-Year-Old Virgin, keep, You yes. keep skipping over what the names of these movies are. I have oh, to insert okay. them so everyone knows. Oh, yeah, okay. We're talking about the guy who did the music to these gigantic movies. Yeah. That's okay. You can continue to be humble. I'll insert them for you. Okay, good. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was followed up by Superbad, which was also number one at the yeah. movie. It was two weeks in a row, and that was even a bigger film. So that solidified a very healthy start in the career and i just i loved it and so i've been doing that ever since and that's been that's been my primary focus mm-hmm. but still being playing and doing a little you know, live stuff when it when it presents itself you know did some stuff with sting and, and then um during the whole bit in fact i was i was i went to audition for sting as i was following up 40 year old virgin so it was a pretty heavy really? time yeah 
Wow. Yeah, because uh, I knew that I was needed to stay on, you know, stay stay put for the movie. But then uh-huh. I was going to be doing stuff with Sting. How how in the hell that's going to work? But, <laughs> but uh, Judd Judd was very kind and let me, you know, uh, was was okay with me taking off for a few uh-huh. days to do this audition, and then consequently I was asked to do this live eight, you know, benefit. Uh, at Hyde Park, and I was going to be gone for about a week. And again, it was a really crucial time. And and Judd was very cool about, hey, well, you got to do that, man. That's a, a great yeah. opportunity, and and it worked out. That's fine. great. Okay, so we have to stop here because you just name okay. dropped or touched on all these different things that are. I'm guessing. I know I want to know more about. First okay, of all, sure. being in the business of Judd Apatow feels like the right place to be because he especially right then he was really capturing the zeitgeist with his movies and his TV shows and his comedy he still does. What's it like being in the Judd Apatow business? You, it sounds like he's a really great guy. Do you have any stories to pass along? What kind of notes does he send you? You know, do you send him music for super bad or forgetting Sarah Marshall and him? Eh, that's not quite what I had in mind. I was thinking a little something more this or that. You know? oh, very, yeah, very much so. Yeah, okay. I mean, pretty much everything is through emails, you know, uh, uh, and, uh, and sometimes we have conversations. We have a conversation at the beginning of a project about the about the vibe of it and the, and the style of it, and, and he lets me go off and try some things, and then either here's what he likes or suggests some other approaches, but he's great at music. He's really good. He knows music very well. He's great instincts. And, um, when he, when he passes you notes, does he say, I want it to sound more like a particular artist? Like we know he's a Graham Parker fan from, uh, this is 40. Does he say yeah. to you or his notes, like, give me a little Graham Parker mixed with a little sting or whatever, or does it say, no, I just need this peppier or softer or what? Well, this there's, there's two aspects of that. One aspect is what's the sound of the show. What's the sound of the, of the, of the movie or the TV series. And, and, and that is sort of a global decision first. And so usually stick to that program. And then, then we would talk about more along the lines of, I think we need to feel more of this or feel more of that. Maybe this music's making me feel like we're giving this away or we're, we're not, we're not giving, providing enough sub, subtext to a particular character. So yeah, it's usually like, Again, it's it's more genre specific discussions at the beginning, and then more okay. sort of emotional tones and and uh, beats and things like that. Does he tell you things? And I should say, not just Judd, but anyone in this in this case. Do they say things like, "I'm imagining now my my uh, sense of this scene or my sense for this whole movie is I'd like to hear I just want acoustic guitar." Or this particular scene, I was imagining a full orchestra. Or this scene over here, I was imagining a heavy electric guitar. Do they tell you things like that? Or do they leave it up to you to decide whatever you want, and then they react to that? Yeah, they're usually, it's usually not that specific. Okay. Yeah. Usually, usually when you're working with directors, they're, they're not breaking it down into the instrumentation. Hmm. Uh, they, they may break it down more, and it's like oh, something like, you know, maybe it might be, I was kind of want this show to be like Tom Waits or, you know, something mm. like that. Or mm-hmm. like, I really like this record, this Tom Waits record. Or I, I remember on on a show I did called love for Netflix. I love that show. And I miss that was it. A really good show. I loved it. 
Yeah, it was really fun to work on. Yeah. And there was one show uh, where Jack goes, you know, I want to do something different for this show, for this episode. And something like uh, something from, you know, Frank's Wild Years, you know, like a, a Tom Waits record. Or, mm-hmm. And so it was a completely different style from, from what the sound was. And so, so every once in a while, that we would do something like that. Okay. Uh, okay. But those were more one-offs. That you know, it's usually we'd stick to the stick to a genre. Okay. And then again, it's more uh, based on the notes are more based on characters and and what should happen in the scene, and not so much on the the, the uh, breakdown of musical instruments and that mm-hmm. kind of a thing. Okay. So, like, if you're, um, I'm, I've got your. Let's take get him to the Greek. You did the sound for that, or the music for that one. And um, Russell Brand is obviously a very big character. Jonah Hill is kind of the chubbier, schlubbier guy. When you're watching the movie, do you think Russell Brand is reminding me of these instruments or songs in this pattern? Or I don't know. These be- I'm not a musician at all. This beats per minute. Or... You know, Jonah's reminding me of this. Is that how it works for you? Do you have to watch it several times? What's the process for you? Well, a lot of the time in movies, by the time that you're you're involved, by the time a composer is taking part in it, the the director in in uh, along with the film editor will talk about placeholder music. They just call it temp music. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll have a music editor that's that's a music editor to help them temp it. And so sometimes there's already stuff that's there and they'll just to give them a feel for what they like. And at times that will be something you follow if they like it, if it's a stylistic thing, they like it or something they'll say, Oh, we really don't like this temp at all, but we just wanted to have something for pacing. Mm-hmm. So you're in, you're either informed by it. that will give you ideas. Uh, but either way, if it's something they don't like, and then I can ask them, why don't you like it? And then that's informative too, because mm-hmm. knowing what they don't like and having to explain it, then then I could well then just do the opposite of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. Take an opposite approach. Okay. Do you write the music there in like a home studio? Do you yes. go? Okay. Right here in city. Okay. And do you yeah. have? I, I mean, I can see part of your room. Do you have like twenty instruments around you, and you just kind of tinker with different sounds? What do you think? Oh, I see. Okay, a bunch of guitar guitars yeah, everywhere. Another room. There's a, in that room there. There's uh-huh. drums, and the piano, yep. and some other instruments and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did anyone else? I mean, you really got along well, obviously, with Judd. You're in other movies. What are some of the other? Who are some of the other directors that you've worked with? Well, I worked with uh, Tom McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Who did uh, Spotlight? You know, yeah, Oscar did Win Win, right? Winning. Who did Win Win? Very good. Yeah, so you know yep. your movies. Yeah. Peyton uh, Reed, who did uh, you know Ant Man? Mm-hmm. We did uh, a movie called Yes Man. Yeah, that was a fun movie. Which that was because I did I I was, I was a co-composer scenario with me and E from the Ills. Really? Yeah. So they wanted like because they were using a lot of his songs. Okay. They thought they wanted to bring his song and the vibe of his song to the score, but they thought it'd be best to pair it, pair him with a, a composer composer because yeah. there's there's more to it, you know. Because when you're writing score music, it's a, usually the, an artist will write the complete picture when they write songs. Because that's it; it's all about the music. 
but for score there's already a lot of the picture painted with the with the characters and the dialogue and mm -hmm. it's a different it's a different way of writing music i bet yeah so uh so speaking we, of different ways of writing music how is there a difference between writing uh scores for movies versus scores for television no uh the, the only uh, the, the thing that's most uh that's most different would be things like schedule uh and uh in episodic tv you've got miniature deadlines to fulfill and and once you you know, if you're working on the first episode, well, that first episode is going to be done in two weeks or something like that, let's say, yeah. and then it's over. You know, whereas a movie, you could be working on it for three three months and go, hey, what about that first opening scene? Let's go back to that. Mm -hmm. So you can go. You have you have the luxury of being able to go back and you know sometimes once you get into it, you you learn things and you're able to go back and 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 fortify pre previous cues with the with the new knowledge you've you've had. Yeah. Experience. Um, when you worked for Made, going back when you did the music for Made and Dinner for Five, which was that great show that John Favreau had on IFC there for a while, yeah. um, did you get to know John very well? Did you interact with Vince at all? Well, yeah, Vince and John would come to my studio. You know, got to know John a little bit. You know, been over his house a few times. Did you work uh, on Chef too? Yeah, I did. I, well, I, I supplied the only score music that's in the, which is only, I think, two or three scenes. The rest of it's okay. all songs. Right. You know, like Latin, Latin music that we're yeah. licensed for it. But yeah, so I, I did do Chef. Chef was my favorite movie of that year. Oh, it's I such love a, that movie. Yeah. 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 I mean, look at John Favreau, man. man. But you know, it doesn't okay. surprise me. It does not surprise me because he was, he's, you know, I, I, I right away I could tell he was cr crazy smart. So and, that's interesting you say that. So when you're working, when you meet him way back with Made and Dinner for Five, you're thinking, I could see this guy directing <laughs> Iron Man and becoming huge. And you could see that. Yeah. Well, there wasn't any movies, such movies then at that time. Course, I don't that's believe. true. Yeah. I, I don't know if there was any. Marvel movies out yet, but no. yeah, I just, he just had an intellect and uh, a, a, a good knowledge. And, and he's also just a good, a good guy. Seems like it. He's, he's a huge, you know, he's a good human. Yeah. And, uh, you know, funny as hell and smart, yeah. and talented. Is Vince the same in real life as he is on camera? Oh my gosh. <laughs> he is so funny. Really? Oh yeah. He's hilarious. He's hilarious. Yeah. Can you tell us a story? I w well, okay. Uh, so made was, again, it was, they asked their front, their friend, uh, a composer named, sadly, he's not live anymore, but it's a gentleman whose name was John O'Brien. Oh, they asked him to score it. And then John asked me to help him do it because he thought that our skill sets together would, would, would provide a bigger swatch of music that would, that was needed for the film. Mm -hmm. And so it, I was talking with, with John, John O'Brien, and we had this idea, like we wanted to make this, this percussion sounds, but we didn't want to do it with shakers and tambourines. We wanted to make percussion. Hmm. And so we went to home, we went to home Depot to buy pieces of metal and uh, chains and, and just things we can hit with sticks and shake. And I just remember we went to uh, that Vince came with us. <laughs> you know, I may be confusing, I may be confusing, I'm confusing either that time or a time that we just went to the store. 
Okay. I can't remember which one. We were at the store and we we're at the checkout line and, and he was just really funny with the, with the girl at the counter, you know, in his way. Yes. <laughs> the thing about that though, is at that time, Vince hadn't had any big comedies. Mm-hmm. He was doing gr- gr- grammat- you know, dramatical dr- yeah. dramas. And I remember thinking, why isn't this guy doing comedies, man? He's I wondered the same thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and sure enough, well, you know, yeah. he ended up doing Wedding Crashers and several yeah. other ones. Yeah. And, but yeah, he, you know, another uh, good guy. Yeah. Swingers, he was so obviously a movie star after swingers and then he, but I, it was almost like he wanted to prove himself as an actor. So he was doing like return to paradise and, uh, clay pigeons and all these different movies. And then finally they, he old school and wedding crashers and that stuff there, they tapped into what makes Vince Vince. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. So we should talk about your new album because, and I'm sure you hear this a lot. It sounds like, the fantastic score to a movie that doesn't exist, you know? Especially North Star, the first song. I just am listening to this thinking, I want to see the movie that I'm guessing Lyle has in his head that he's writing this for, you know, it's so good. Well, thanks. I really appreciate that. I I, I don't have such a story. Oh, really? (laughs) No, it's it's not. It's not what it is. It's essentially, it's the opposite approach uh, that I take. Well, opposite in the, in the, in the aspect of it, not having parameters or not having, not having something to work with that's already sort of set in stone. When you're working, everything else I do, I'm, you know, I'm pretty much I'm, I'm a guy that I'm a I'm a service provider. Whether it's writing music for films or playing, doing sessions or touring with other people, whatever it is, I'm providing a service for them. It's their vision. Mm-hmm. So there are parameters. Whether it be yeah. a film, you know, film you've got character, you've got plot, you've got uh, dialogue all that stuff so mm-hmm. 
I'm fitting into that. I'm, I'm, I'm a cog in the wheel. So what I enjoy doing for my own music is what happens if I just sit down and pick up my guitar or play the keyboard? What would happen? Yeah. And what would happen if I just let things flow and you can't help but bring your experience to what it is that you're doing at the moment. Right. You know, so the experience, all I knew was that I wanted to write music from a very sort of free associative type space, meditative, meditative, meditative space Mm -hmm. and see where that happens. And then I knew that I wanted to orchestral or the orchestral domain to be a, a very big part of it. Now, about 12 years ago, I, st- I began working with an orchestrator. His name is John Ashton Thomas. And uh, we, just, we just got along great. We're about the same age. And we'd done several films together. And I knew I wanted him, I wanted him to be a substantial part of this, this record. Mm. And so I got him involved from the get-go. And That's great. Beginnings of, of of the songs, and then along with uh, you know what they will call like orchestral mock-ups, working with sample libraries, and then we just a back and forth scenario, and and did that over uh, four or five years, to, about over about four years, only because I was working on the record when I had time, mm-hmm. so it didn't it didn't take me four years to make it. Well, it did, but only because I didn't start it and then finish it. And one fell swoop, you know, I was working on it off and on. Yeah. I, um, when I'm listening to it, I, so here's the deal. I'll just be completely honest with you. It seems to me that, um, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. When a lot of musicians make solo albums, a lot of musicians who aren't singers make solo albums. It oftentimes the album feels to me like, Hey, look what I can do. You know, look at me blazing on my guitar or look at all the interesting things I can do on my bass or on the drums or whatever. Look how interesting and how good I am at my instrument. And there's, but the, the beauty I think of Uncommon Measures is that you coming with, with your natural talent for cinematic music, um, your, the album never feels showy to me in that same way. It feels cinematic. Like I said, it, there's a difference between hearing someone noodle on a guitar for 10 minutes and hearing something, something epic and cinematic that, that's inspiring a, music, a, a movie, even if it's in your own mind. You know, In fact, one of the songs on the, on the album, Labyrinth of Love, really beautiful, just acoustic picking on there from you.
And again, I was thinking, well, this is probably one of the songs that showcases Lyle's guitar playing better than the rest. But at no point am I sitting here thinking, enough, Lyle, get it. You know, you're, I, I've heard, okay, thank you. I've heard it. I'm, it's really beautiful. I'm feeling it, you know? Thank you. I appreciate that. Sure. The playing, the soloing is, is the last aspect of it that I consider. I'm not building vehicles to show that let me just wail over the, over the top of it. Now there, there might be sections where I end up doing that, but that's never the motive. Good. You know, it's, it's always about how can I write a compelling piece of music that sounds good before there's any uh, technical wizardry on guitar. And, and, you know, the, I think that really comes from the things that I liked growing up and that's very melodic based music. So, you know, I come from the Beatles. Yeah. And then when it when it went from Beatles to well, it, it started with Beatles and pop the pop music of the of the sixties and the seventies. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, just great songwriting. You know, it's great songwriting. Yeah. And it's fantastic, memorable melodies. And then you've got uh and then when I when I started to to get you know, I went through the period where it really, really was all about playing. And my, and my agenda was as a guitar player. I, I had that period because that was my focus. I mean, that, that's what I needed to do in order to, to uh, achieve a certain uh, expertise or a certain, let me put it this way, to achieve a certain level on my guitar. I had to focus on guitar-centric uh, music. Mm -hmm. But even then, it was at a time where, the guitar was still serving a bigger, uh, 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 serving the bigger purpose, which is a good, a good well-constructed piece of music. Uh, and for me, it, it would have been in prog, in prog rock, let's say the more longer forms like Gen Genesis and Yes. And it's still very, there's a lot of melodic mm -hmm. music going on. There's melodies, there's singing. And, and so that's what always stayed with me. Mm. And this, and generally I don't, I don't enjoy I don't listen to guitar records really. I mean, unless there's, unless there's, there's really good songs. Mm -hmm. If they're really good songs, if it's really compelling before the guitar solo, mm -hmm. then I'll go, okay, then, then I'm hooked. And I want to, then I want to hear what the solo is. But if I'm like, Oh, it's just a, there's nothing really there for me to hang my melodic cook into. Right. Then I don't stay with it. I, me, me neither. I hear you. One of the other songs on the album I wanted to ask you about was Unsung Hero.
because to me it sounds almost like Steely Dan or something. It sounds like this West Coast, just killer, late 70s, early 80s. You're imagining just people, beautiful people on a beach or something like that. You know, it's got that kind of vibe to it. Maybe from the look of your face, I, I, you look a little like, well, that's not what I had in mind at all when I when I recorded that song, but that's what it feels yeah, like to me. I mean, that's the thing about it, again, is that, what what do I have to talk? What do I have to say? I have nothing in my mind when I wrote the music. Yeah, okay. I, I am letting things sort of flow from a deeper place, which is a deeper place to me is is beyond the brain. Mm. It's a a different way of writing. Again, it's in reaction to everything else that where there's very certain things that I just wanted to let things happen. That's why there's there's so many different styles because yeah. that that track is a little bit more funk based, you know. Yes, and, and I yeah. like. That. He's yeah. got horns and things like that. Love it. You know, again, this is a really just a free way of of, of working because that song doesn't isn't anything like Labyrinth of Love. It could be a no. completely different album. It could be a completely different artist. Mm -hmm. But I think the thing that might that ties it together is this this the strong sense of melody. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just a lot of melody throughout. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's why people beyond just guitar players like it because it's not just about guitar playing. I totally agree. Because as I said, it would not be an album that I would naturally gravitate to. But you have made, I think it's really beautiful. And, wow. I, and I really, really liked it. For the diversity that you mentioned, like the Labyrinth and Love of Love and Unsung uh, Heroes are next to each other on the album. And so each song just feels like a piece, you know? I just, and it taps into, like you were saying, this, like, a, it, it may not have been as conscious to you, but from an outsider who knows that you make, music for some of my very favorite movies and you have to actually you have to obviously be very good at that in order to maintain a job like that um i just each one is like a mini movie to me that i can't wait to see you know i i loved it i was really oh, happy that's with great it. i appreciate that thanks you a bet. Lot. um okay so we have to i want to hear some more stories um and i'm guessing going back i mean like i said i've got a list here of people you've worked with that I'm curious about. I, I really want to talk about jellyfish because I think spilt milk is an unheralded masterpiece. Just about that thing is so amazing. It's a sad cliche cloaked in the Navy blue of slowly fading stars. Tell me how this came to be. Cotton spoons, burning jealous pictures of marriages of friends. You never ask to be the glutton of sympathy. She says, Oh.
I agree 100%. Yeah. So when you, you know, they had gone through a bit of a split. Jason Faulkner's not in the band anymore. The other guys are kind of carrying on. When you are attached to that project, are you thinking, I'm now a member of Jellyfish? Or did they just hire you to play on a couple of songs? What did you do? Well, when I first, I, I'll go back a little bit. When, when I heard the first record, my thought was, who is this great band from England? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so I, I don't know how I found out, but somehow I found out that no, they're not from England. The, the, the two central guys of Jellyfish, excuse me, Andy Sturmer and Roger Manning Jr. were in a band called Beatnik Beach from the Bay Area, which is where I lived. And they opened up for my band. Uh, I know. At really? Least yeah. They used to no the, way. My tag. So I actually, I actually saw that band. No way. And I was, oh, my gosh. So when I found that out, now, at, by then, Bourgeois Tag was, a, you know, I would say we were a big fish in a small pond, mm -hmm. for sure. This is before. Well, we, we had gotten signed. Mm -hmm. We made a record. Um, were you still in Sacramento at that point? Well, I was in Sacramento when I first heard heard about them, but then we okay. my, I, we the band disbanded and then moved to Marin County. I didn't know. Oh, so after that is when I once I moved to Marin County. I, that's when I figured out, oh, these guys are it's 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 the guys from Beatnik Beach, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so I just did some sleuthing and I found out that I was able to to communicate or, or get a phone number for one of them. I can't remember if it was, I think it was Roger. It might have been Andy. I can't remember. It was a very long, you know, it was a long time ago. Sure. We're talking like 1990 or something like that. And and I basically said, I love your band so much. If you ever need a guitar player, I would love to participate. You know, love to to play with you, your band or, or record or if you're doing a record. Yeah. And it's, well, it's a good thing that you call because guess what? We're we're kind of looking for somebody. So uh, I ended up going to. Katati where Andy Andy had his little porta studio in a bedroom and we did the demos for Spilt Milk there. Wow. And then uh, I was asked to participate in the record and, and so the producers wanted to also bring in John Bryan. And so we, we kind of did it by about half and half each. Okay. Are you on New Mistake?
Yeah. That's, so what it is is some songs are all me and some songs are all John. Uh-huh. I think there's a couple songs where it's all John, but I have a one or two parts in it. Okay. But okay. Mis- New Mistake is all me. Okay. Latin Sympathy is all me. Yes. There's a couple. Okay. I th- I think that album is special. I was listening. To, I have it, and I hadn't. I pulled it out today to get ready to talk to you because it had been a while, and I just think it's amazing. The production on that album. I don't know if you have. I don't know how involved you are in the actual making of it. Are they just saying, "Look, no. Lyle, we just need you to play some parts," or yeah, are you? Because it feels. I don't know. If painstaking is the right word. It's just That's that it's. What's that? That's the right word. Is it really? Okay. Because it feels so elaborate, you know, yeah. so Beatlesque. And uh-huh. I'm wondering, is Lyle sitting there like, this is fun, this is work, this is hard? I wondered what you felt like. Well, uh, there, there was a there was a a degree of intensity in the studio. Not necessarily when we did the demos, but when we when I came down to LA, it was very much you know, I think they felt that, that, you know, it's their second record and it, they needed to have hits and they needed to have a, a record that would go past critical acclaim. So I think there was a very serious and intent vibe in the studio. So I wouldn't say it was, it was not fun and games, but it was just hunkering down and getting the work yeah. done. Okay. Uh, and working with, you know, Albie Galutin who did uh, produce the big stuff with the BGs and, and then, Jack, Jack Joseph Puig, who was a super well-respected engineer, mixer, uh, slash producer. So they had all that dialed in. You know, I was there just to provide guitar. Did you tour with them at all? No, no. I was never asked to join the band. Okay, okay. What then, too, about uh, Frank Black? Did you? Are you on Headache? Yes. song how did did frank black come to you because he heard you on jellyfish how how did these things even happen you know well that's that's another interest that's another funny uh, interesting story i know i think it was michael urbano from bushwood texas he man uh you like the pixie i go yeah i like i like the pixies i heard the stuff i've heard was really cool goes hey he's he's doing his own thing now it's called frank black is you got to check out this record and so it was the first frank black record and I just loved it. I thought it was so good. And I remember telling uh, my friend, uh, Joel Danzig, who, who is a guitar builder. He's, he was one of the main guys for Hamer guitars. Hmm. And uh, Joel 
who was living in Connecticut relocated to to Marin County, which which, are, which is where I was living at the time. So I was digging this record and I was turning Joel onto it. And it, and so Joel calls me one day and he says, "Hey, my friend John Tiven is producing this uh, tribute record to a guy named Otis Blackwell who wrote like Return to Sender for Elvis and all these big hits for other artists." And uh, he's having different people participated, and one of the persons he's getting to participate participate in in it is Frank Black. And not only that, is he's going to be recording in Marin County. And I was like, I got to meet him. Yes. (laughs) Can I can I go to the session and just hang out because I got to meet this guy because you know I was thinking I would love to work with him because I I just love his music so much. So I got the okay and ended up at this session. Uh, and where Frank, you know, he drove his Cadillac from LA to, you know, to, to, to play on this, to play on this song. And it was at, uh, Johnny Cola's studio. Who's the, uh, who's the sax Huey player. Lewis. Huey Lewis. Yeah. I was at his studio. Yeah, no way. <laughs> yeah. So, and so I'm there and, uh, you know, I meet, I meet him, I meet Frank Black and he's really nice. I, I don't know. I think that they told them, they told them about me that, oh yeah, I was in that band bourgeois tag and I played with Todd Rundgren and, you know, so he knew a little bit about me and and so we, we just had a good time i was there and then and i was asked to, hey you want to do some background vocals so i ended up doing some background vocals and i'm standing in the uh, in the into the tracking room with with frank goes hey so so yeah i hear really, really great stuff about your your guitar playing and and he just goes what are you doing in september and I'm, i said playing with you <laughs> you laughed and, and i was like totally serious he goes, uh-huh. well, are you going to be in LA any, you know, in, around that time in September? And I'm thinking like, no. And I said, yeah. Yeah. He goes, well, you know, so he gave me his phone number. He goes, well, if, you know, if you're, if you're in the area, just give me a call. And so I called my friend, a uh, drummer named Toss Panos, who plays drums on my record, by the way. Okay. Who I, I'd gotten to be good friends with because we were together with Jude Cole. Yeah. So I ended up sleeping on, 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 on Toss's couch for several days and put in a couple calls to Frank and then he finally calls back. And then I ended up going to Frank's house and he played me a couple songs on guitar. And, and so uh, that's how that whole thing happened. No way. Yeah. No way. I imagine hanging out with Frank black. You're, I imagine Frank uh, all day watching horror movies and reading comic books and maybe the occasional like seance or Ouija board. Is that what it's like hanging out with Frank Black? No. Or sci-fi movies or something like that? No? Yeah, no. Uh, well, you know, we were working. So yeah. Okay. Happen, but yeah, I mean, he, he definitely likes Ray Bradbury. And yeah. Uh, and he the thing that is interesting about, he just, he has a, he's a big fan of the type of music you wouldn't think he would like. Cause we would, really? we were touring and, and at first I thought he was, he was doing it out of just to be funny or something, but he would uh-huh. play like Freddie Fender music. <laughs> on the bus and i'm like oh wow really you know <laughs> he likes it yeah it. wow uh, but uh i i just loved every minute of, of working with him great i he, love, I love I, frank and he, and he really he, he cut me a lot of slack in his band. i mean I, I i really went off <laughs> mm-hmm. gave me a lot of room to to create over his music seriously too how great is it the pixies get to take this victory lap that they've been on for like a decade now. They were so great at the time, not quite as recognized as they deserve to be. 
Yeah. And then later on, you know, he's, he's a cult artist, Frank as a solo and the Pixies are on the fringe. They're cult artists for decades. And then finally it all catches up to them and they get to bask in the success that they deserved all along. Cause their stuff is great. Yeah. To, 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 to be in a band, put out some records, break the band up, go off and do your own thing. Yeah. To, uh, you know, I, I don't want to call it marginal success because I don't think that gives it enough tr- credit, but certainly not the kind of uh, accolades that you would get f- from from the Pixies, which right. inspired Nirvana and all the yeah. stuff. So the band puts back together, and then they're playing the Hollywood Bowl. Yeah, three, three or four or five years later, they're Isn't playing that crazy. The yeah, headlining the Hollywood Bowl. Crazy, and uh, you know, it's just that's that's what's really good about those bands that made it big during that period. Pearl Jam, yeah, Soundgarden, yes. Uh, if you were lucky enough to make it big in the '90s, you've got your audience, and they're going to stay with you. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. But yeah, he's still uh, he's still doing that, and uh, yeah, again, uh, I I just think the world of him in as a human being and as a songwriter. And, good. Well, that that record, Teenager of the Year, you know, something like twenty four songs and he wrote all the lyrics like i don't even know like in a very short amount of time really <laughs> really great lyrics yeah i mean yeah. right he just has a very very interesting and unique perspective the way he writes music is a real real interesting because when you when you learn his songs with when you're because he does the vocals later they don't really they kind of don't make sense but when he sings over them then oh my gosh yeah it makes completely sense how, how well and no one else sounds like him that's no. i think why why the pixies are able to take the victory lap is because people are finally like there's nothing else quite like this you know no one else sounds like frank black no way no no nope. they can be influenced by there are people who are obviously influenced by the pixies but no one sounds like that at yeah. all except them Okay, I got to ask you about one. I know nothing about this other than I saw it on saw it listed somewhere, and I thought it was interesting. The actor David Charvet, who didn't he oh, yeah. used to be on Baywatch? Yeah. Did you play guitar on his album? I didn't even know he had an album. Yeah, I did. What was that like? Well, you remember? Did, did you ever? Did you meet him or play, yeah. like get in the studio with him? And he's coming we, with songs that he's written. Guitar overdubs here in my studio. Okay. And uh, Ula Romo 
was a producer, and he came up through the, rank, through the ranks of Mutt Lang, a Swedish guy. And he hired me to play on it, and uh, that's what we did. We did it over here. We did guitar overdubs. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to check that album out. I have no idea if it's any good. It's a very pop record, you know? Yeah. Okay. Okay. What about Juliet and the Licks? Oh, yeah. Well, I, uh, we wrote a song together. Uh, okay. Let me, let me say something here. As is often the case, people always want to discredit actors or actresses when they want to become rock stars. Yeah. I saw Juliet in concert once. Yeah. She man. is amazing. Totally. She's like the female Iggy Pop. She was yeah. legit. Yeah. And her music was great too. So if yeah. anyone thinks that this, you know, that's a flight of fancy and it has no merit, they're wrong. Yep. She was legit when she was doing it. How did you cross paths with her? I think I met her through Beck. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, she just, we just started talking and we, she ended up come over here and we ended up writing a couple songs together. She's great. So, I mean, I get, okay, I'm going to ask you kind of a fanboy question. I'm a normal guy. You're there in Hollywood. You know, you're a big time Hollywood guy and I'm a regular guy. When you <laughs> see Juliette Lewis on a mo in a movie or on TV, do, do you ever, I mean, do you think of the day she walked into your studio and oh, you two sure. sat down or, yeah. you know, got high together or whatever? I mean, do you, yeah. you know, I mean... <laughs> Oh, I know her. She's my yeah, friend. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a lot of times with people, you, you kind of have your time with them. You have your 15 minutes uh -huh. and it's kind of over. Yeah. Because they're busy. They're busy. I'm busy. Yeah. Um, but I certainly, I certainly reflect on, oh yeah. I saw her in, um, oh, was that Mark Ruffalo? Just, I think he won uh, an Emmy for his portrayal. He plays two characters. Yeah, it's on HBO. I, on HBO. I can't remember the name of it. Oh, it was so good. She, she was in that. She was, she's a really great actress. She is a great actress. She's in that, but yeah. It's it cool. See her do something. Okay. Did she talk to you about Scientology? No. The, and that, the thing is, the whole time I was with, Sci, uh, with, was with Beck, there was never, we never discussed it. Okay. Yeah, I wondered about that. that I mean, yeah, I'm just curious. Uh, okay, we got to. You got to. I think it's a situation. My my take is that it, there's 
it's like sometimes with some people, it's like being being a Catholic, but you're really not a Catholic. And in other words, you you say you're a Catholic, but you're not holding the Bible and and talking to people about Jesus. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do know. And I think you you take what you what what you from it that made sense to you, and the rest of it like like you know, okay, maybe he did, maybe so the the snake didn't talk to the people. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. I grew up Mormon. I know exactly what you. Oh mean. yeah, well Salt Lake City. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I take the parts of it I like, and then I don't worry about the parts I don't like. Did you see that documentary on HBO about the Mormon murder, murder among the Mormons, or whatever yeah. it's called? I haven't watched it yet. It's really it's good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm going to. That's next on our list. Okay. Tell me about Sting. How did this happen? Why and why did you play guitar and not Dominic Miller? Well, we both played guitar. Okay. Okay. I was the supplemental stuff. Okay. Element. I was a supplement to Dom. Okay. They just wanted to do, Steve wanted to do a four-piece band. And they were looking for a guitar player. And the drummer uh, they were working with was, and still is, is Josh Freeze. Mm-hmm. And uh, Josh, I met Josh at one of the sessions, I believe. It might have even been the band that John O'Brien was part of. Mm. He and I did Made Together. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if that was where I met Josh Freeze. But we just hit it off and... I've ever seen, I went to Guitar Center, which I never do, but only when I need something. And he was there, and he was holding his little boy at the time. And I, Josh, oh, how's it going? And how, what are you doing? He goes, oh, man, I'm, I just started playing with Sting. I'm like, going, oh, my gosh. And and then he was telling me, yeah, we've got, uh, we're, I think we're going to do a four-piece band, like a two guitars, bass, and drums. I'm like, I looked at him like that. And he goes, I know, Lyle. I know how much you love the police. <laughs> And that, you know, I said, oh man, great, man. Fantastic. And then yeah. and not, not too long afterwards, I was in my studio working on 40 year old virgin. And, and he calls me out of the blue and he goes, loud, you got a minute to talk. And I said, no, <laughs> I just knew why he was calling me. And, and not two seconds after he said they were looking for a player and that his manager from New York, beep, beep, beep. I see on my phone that I've got a call coming from two, one, two. No I went, oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, I think that must be her. So good for you, man. Yeah. So, okay. Just last night I interviewed a guy named Jeffrey Lee Campbell who played, who oh. toured with sting for the, um, nothing like the sun oh. tour. Hmm. And that's basically all he was. He was a nobody recruited by sting to come play guitar on just that for just that year. Okay. And then that was the end of it. And yeah. we were talking about what sting is like to work for, to, socialize with to be around were you able to get to know sting become friends with him make small talk with him what do you talk with sting about well i i think with with sting there's a the, it, it, it stays pretty much in the professional realm mm. there's definitely small talk there's how you doing mm-hmm. there's hugs how's your family mm-hmm. but you don't really want to get super you don't want to be friends with your boss it's an awkward scenario and and in fact, Dominic told me one of this one of the secrets there to their long lasting relationship is is keeping it professional. You're not getting too close, and definitely caring about each other, but make but, but keeping the parameters such that it, it's it stays it, it stays healthy as a business. Yeah, together, and that's why they're still working together. I think okay. Part of the reason. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, we had some good times. You know, we definitely didn't have us over for parties at his place and 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 we'd go do things after you know groups we'd 
yeah. in Russia, going to some dignitary's place and having cigars and dinners and yeah, it was it was it was fun. It was a great First class travel and oh, gosh, everything yeah. the whole time, right? Hundred percent, just you know, private jets and yeah. four seasons. You staying in the same hotel as, as he. You know, he very much respects his musicians, and uh, he's a musician. He really is. He's at first at, at core, he's a musician. All the fame and the rock star stuff is kind of was piled on top of that, and you know, obviously well deserved. But he's a musician. Okay. He treats people with respect and dignity. Okay, that's good to hear. Yeah. Um, what about Pat Monahan? Oh, Pat Monahan. Yeah, I, I was working with, uh, it was a period where I was doing a lot of work with Pat Leonard, the, mm. the producer. Mm-hmm. And uh, he. I've been uh, trying to get him on here. I oh, need to get him. Pat's fantastic. He's going to have a lot of stories for you. I bet. I bet. This was just uh, one of them. He had me uh, subduing, uh, producing a Pat Monahan from Train mm-hmm. and uh, had me over. And we actually, Pat and I, we wrote some songs together. Both Pat's and myself. Yeah, there's a. Well, I think one song made it on the record. Okay. The only one. It's called it's called Last of Seven. By the way, if anyone. Last of Seven. Yeah, and the song wrote was uh, Cowboys and Indians. Uh, yeah, I have a, a kind of a nice like David Gilmore-esque solo in that track. Nice. nice. But uh, I, you know, sometimes you work with these people and, and you find out that they are incredibly funny. And this happened a couple times in, in, throughout my career. One time was with Pat. Uh-huh. He's an extremely funny guy. I mean, like really yeah. funny. Yeah. And the other guy who really surprised me was Jacob Dylan. Really? Oh, really? Incredibly funny. <laughs> yeah, really funny. Like super, super funny guy. Wow. Yeah. That's great. You know, it's funny. I know Train is a bit of a punching bag. Um, and I understand that they're not a very cool band to a lot of they're popular and stuff, but they don't have a lot of street cred. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I really have a hard time with this this snobby business with, with music. You know Me what too. I mean? Me too. Just, there's no room for it. This there's, there's no need for it. It's just because it doesn't have the 
you know, the right era amplifier or whatever, you know, or the yep. flow. What, it just, I just think it's this room for everything. If people are writing from their hearts and, and there, and it's, and it obviously has an audience and they enjoy it, then, mm-hmm. you know, just. Yeah. Just, I totally agree. You know, that's, I just think it's, it's, to me, it just, I think it smacks of insecurity. Well, and no one should ever feel silly for liking something. You know, I mean, especially music, that's what it's for is to make you happy. It's making you happy and someone's going to make you feel dumb for feeling happy. That's the worst. Well, I could tell you Pat sings his ass off. I mean, yes. So incredible singer. Yes, he is. So that's what I was going to say is that I was kind of more on the train is uncool side of the fence for a while. And then he had his own podcast a few years ago. I'm on it. I thought you were. I thought so. Pat cast. I yeah. used to w- listen to that every week and I fell in love with it. And, and I, that's when I reevaluated, you know, Pat Monahan seems like a really fun guy and he can sing. And whenever on every episode, you guys probably did it too. It, you do just a quick acoustic version of some train song or yeah, something. We did, we did a jellyfish song. You did. Oh man. Yes. I gotta, I gotta find that. That was we years did, ago. Uh, we did, uh, New mistake. Okay. Yeah, we played it on there. Yeah, because he's a jellyfish fan. That's right. Yeah, he's like he was just like the he's the kind of guy like I wish I could see him more often. Yeah. And they they asked me to uh, sit in with them when they played the Staples Center. They were doing a a show with uh, Paul and Oates, and I we played uh, it was shortly after Tom Petty died, so we did Free Falling, hmm. and they had me they had me sit sit in with them, so it was really fun. That's great. Yeah, the whole band are just a bunch of great guys. Seems like it. Yeah. I saw a train open for Hall and Oates too. Oh, and good. Um, so good. I, I, I've really come around on Pat and his talent and those guys oh, and that band. Yeah, with good reason. I agree. Yeah. You know, I'm living here in LA now 24 years and so much stuff has happened in my career because I'm here. Yeah. And, uh, and it was this kind of weird prejudice from the Northern California against Southern California. I used to live in Northern California. Oh, so yeah, you want to move that. People are phony and false. And, but you know what? It's the most, uh, the most supportive uh, group of people. And it's where people go to work Mm -hmm. and make a living. And, and and I've got such a, a a mass, uh, uh, some great friends and Mm -hmm. lifelong relationships down here. Yeah. I don't regret it for a second moving. And it's worked out nicely for you too, right? Yeah, very nicely. I, I don't know. No, I, I, are you married? Do you have kids? Yeah. Okay. I've All got one wife. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> and one boy, one son who's 18 years old. Nice. Yeah, he, uh, he's an artist. He's going to way to RISD in the oh, fall. Really? He did the, the he did the oil painting of me in the. Uh, in fact, I'm going to show it to you right now. Yeah, on the cover of the album. Wow. So cool. Yeah. So this is a friend of mine who's a photographer took the picture. Uh huh. My son made a painting of the picture. I got the frame, took it back to the guy that took the original picture and took the picture of this. And that's <laughs> the cover of the record. Love it. I wondered where that came from. Yeah. That's great. And RISD, that's a really good school. Oh yeah. Sure is. You must be proud. Yeah. 
really Good proud. For you. He's a great kid. Good for you. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Lastly, tell me about Brian oh, Adams. Absolutely. Did you play on his last album, Shine a Light? There's another guy that's hilarious. Another really? guy. Oh, wildly funny. He had so much fun in the studio. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Great sense of humor. Yeah. That's crazy. So I have to ask. Great hang. I have to ask, Lyle. I had uh, Keith Scott on here a few years oh, ago. Oh, he's another sweetheart, man. Yes. Yeah. So humble, so unassuming, and such a great guitar player. Yes. I don't understand. No offense to you, Lyle. If you have Keith Scott as your guitarist, why are you outsourcing the guitar on your albums? Why are to you? Why are you not having Keith? Keith hasn't played on a on a Brian Adams album since the nineties. Sometimes you want to record as a group and you want to have two guitar players. Huh. We all we all track together. Really? Yeah. So Keith was there on oh, Shine of Lights. Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, we played together. Okay. Yeah, and we totally bonded over our our mutual mus love for Mob Vishnu Orchestra. Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you musicians love that Mob Vishnu Orchestra. Oh yeah, man, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he. I really, Keith's another great guy. I wish I, you know, talking about these people as we're doing. I just, I wish I could see these people more often. I bet. I mean, I would love nothing more than just to hang out with Keith and Brian and yeah. and uh, Pat and uh, you know his uh, Pat Monahan's his, his guitar yeah. player Jerry is, is another great guy and, and hilarious and all these people you know Pat yeah. Leonard and yeah good, good well it's uh, thanks for letting me extract all these stories from you that's like I said that's my favorite thing when I come across people well you're a triple threat. I mean, I've had, you know, I talked to last year, I talked to Jay Graydon and Wadi Wachtel and Danny Korchmar. And it's just so fun to go down these guys' resumes and ask them a story. You get story after story of all the fun things they've done. Oh yeah. And here you have done that, but you've also scored all these movies that I love. So you, and put out your own music. That's great. And so it's like, there's three fun things to talk about with you. Yeah. You know, I look, I, I'm going to go on a limb and say I'm the best guest you've ever had. <laughs> okay. Last question. I just mentioned all the things you've done. What is one of your favorite stories? 
whether it's a movie story, a movie star story, somebody who is cooler than you thought they'd be, not as cool as you thought, a music story, what? When you sit back there in your studio, are you just like, I'll never forget the time that X happened? Well, I, I think the ones that come to mind are, are, are the times that I've gotten direct communication about what I do. I, I remember one one big one for me was working with with Todd Rundgren, who he's not a guy that heaps praise on anybody. Nope. That if you're working for him, he's very he's he's not that kind of he's not you know he's not a super you know he's full of love and full of yeah. but he doesn't really mm-hmm. sometimes he doesn't really show it you know and uh, and he produced our our band's record and and it was very much a job and he was the producer and and but there was a there was a song that we did for his record on the nearly human record and i had this big guitar moment in a big solo and he's a guitar player like why am i playing a big solo he's a great guitar player so i had you know I had this responsibility not only that but he, he for that particular song it was all of utopia you know, so it was the Utopia, which is a band I loved growing up. Yes. And then, so I had this big, long, you know, solo at the beginning and then a solo outro. And uh, I was kind of nervous about it. And we were in the, we couldn't playing it live, recording it live as a group. And after playing, I don't know, maybe the last take of it, we went into this, all right, let's go take a listen. And so Todd's in the, in the control, you know, we're all in the control room. Todd's in his seat, and he's got the board from him. And then the solo comes in, and then, you know, and he's like, and then I'm, I'm kind of looking at the back of his head, and, and I'm going, I, you know, he's just kind of moving his head a little bit. I go, I think, I think he likes. It. I go, I think I played it pretty good. And then he turns around at me, and he holds his hand up, and I saw a look on his face that I have never seen before in all that time I've been working for him. And it was, a, yeah. it was such a look of such approval, and like, fuck yeah. Yes. And he held his hand and I, I was like, oh, I could even know how to respond to that kind of communication because I hadn't seen that side of him. Yeah. So that was a big moment for me, just getting that, you know, when someone gives you love and you know that it's really yes. heartfelt. And, and that, that happened once with Sting, too. Um, you know, and it, so it's been, there's been a few moments like that that cool. those stick with you because you work your whole career to get to be, to be in, the, in the same room with people like that. Exactly. And for them yes. to look at you you know, as a peer, uh, and, and give you that kind of respect that, that, you know, it rocks your world essentially. I bet it does. Yeah. I, I love that story. Good for you, man. Thanks. thanks well, thanks for talking with me, Lyle. I've, uh, I've had a, fa- I've had a curiosity and a fascination with you since the eighties because I was a bourgeois uh-huh. tag fan. And whenever I see your name on someone's album or on a movie credit or whatever, and I'm always thinking, there's that guy. I love that song. I love what I'm seeing. He might, he does so many things that I like. So thanks oh, for talking with me. Great. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that, uh, you, um, had the interest and, and, um, it's great to talk with you. I had a really good time. All right. There you have it. Lyle Workman. I hope that was interesting. I, I mean, I don't know how you go about scoring a film. I especially don't know how you go about scoring a, an Apatow film. Do you, what, what is the philosophy there? What's the thinking? We had access to a guy who's done it. I thought it'd be really interesting to pick his brain about about how that goes. Uh, I wanted to close it out. Now, I'll be completely honest. I don't know 
if Lyle is playing on this song or not. It's One of a Nail by Todd Rundgren. It's one of my favorite Todd songs. I know Lyle plays on this album, so he's probably in there somewhere. I don't know if it is like a showcase for him, but I love this song and I wanted to play it. Thank you, Lyle, for chatting with me. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Now, next week is a twofer, okay? Next week, we're two recent conversations I had with, let's see, these are bands, they have some things in common. They both came out in the 80s. One of them is one of the biggest one-hit wonders ever. Um, they both only put out two albums, both excellent, and uh, both then disbanded and put out a third album like decades later. Um, both deserve more attention, that is for sure. So we're going to mesh these two interviews together, and that's what's coming out next week. A twofer, two great bands, two great guys, and a lot of great music. Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Malkevich, my right-hand man. We're so grateful he's back. As you may have heard from last week or the recap, Jan's been going through a lot. And uh, let him know that you love him. We're thankful he's here. You guys know you can find us on Facebook by now. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Uh, we'll be back next week. Thanks, everybody.